Leviticus chapter 4. We are going to be looking hopefully at 4 and 5 today to discuss a few things. Now, this does feel a little bit awkward tonight, but for a good reason. Um, tonight being the first Wednesday of September, a lot of our ministries are kicking in and happening. So we have, uh, I mean, just listing out, I was just talking to some people on what we have. We've got the uh, not only our pastor's study going on, but our grief support things are happening tonight. We got our Mission 127 ministry going on and happening happening tonight. We have our Moms on Mission that started tonight, and I think there's like 60 in there signed up, which is a blessing. And then, of course, we got our Taylor's Institute, our established institute that begins tonight upstairs, and there were 80 signed up and more coming. So we are just really thankful about that. Um, that goes on with our children's and preschool stuff, our middle school events, our choir. So just a lot of good things. The last couple of Wednesday nights, we've been close to around a thousand people on campus on Wednesday night. So that's a blessing for us and we're excited. And really everybody's asked and y'all have all made some jokes. Some, and I think it's funny. Um, to, I have to step up my game. I plan to start all this while I'm teaching Leviticus. So as to give everybody a chance. You know what I'm saying? That was my intention. I'll get it. I said, let's wait till I start Leviticus. That gives everybody else a chance to, to survive and feel like they're doing something well. So that's kind of how that, that goes for me. Um, and so, I, I, you know, if I was teaching Revelation right now, it'd be game over. You know what I'm saying? Uh, nobody would be anywhere else but in here, and we'd, it'd all be packed out. So this, is, uh, this has been my purpose in this, to give everybody else a chance. But I'm thankful for y'all. If we had done this and nobody showed up in here, I'm going to go ahead and let you know it would have hurt my feelings. <laughs> um, I don't say that lightly, and I don't talk about my feelings often. But I would let you know that you guys have saved the day for me. So thank you all for hanging out and being here. And it's exciting time at Taylor's First, and we're looking forward to what God's going to do in every aspect. So with that in mind, I want to go ahead and dive in. Man, again, you, you get into some of this with Leviticus, and you just hope, you know, I'm going to get through it. You know what I'm saying? There's so much to say and so much you, you can leave out and so much you don't want to. I mean, it's just a lot there. So we want to dive in and hopefully get through chapter four through a little bit of chapter six, the next two offerings, the, the sin offering and the guilt offering you can see goes a little bit into chapter six. I'm going to try to go through those tonight. So y'all going to have to hold on and, uh, and we'll make it together uh, if, that's, if that's okay. Um, let's start off with prayer, though, before we look at this passage. God, we thank you for all that you're doing in the life of our church. And just even as I'm, I'm sitting here now just thanking you, God, just thinking about all over our campus right now, there are different ages, different groups, different specialties, all kind of things happening. But everyone is learning about you. And growing, and God, that is what's most important. So tonight we rejoice at what you're doing here in the life of our church. We're thankful, God, for the opportunities we have to serve and to serve you well. God, you are uh, you are so kind to us, and so help us now as we look to your word in, in Leviticus, and we we grow from it, we learn from it, God, that you would be exalted in it 
through it and in our lives because of it, Father. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Leviticus begins with zero small talk. Remember, we discussed that the first time. I mean, it just jumps right in. There's no narrative. There's no setting of the stage. It is an addendum, if you will, to what has come before in the book of Exodus. If you remember with Leviticus that it is a part of that Exodus passage. It's just adding on to it. So this is while Moses was at Sinai during that year time that he was there. And, and so this is adding to what we already have kind of been through a little bit in Exodus, but giving us more detail about the sacrificial system, what it means, what it takes for the people of God to dwell with God. Now, if you come back to the heart of the issue, that's it. The Lord God saved the people out of bondage in Egypt. He delivered them so that he can be with them, right? And so how do sinful people live and dwell with a holy God? That's what Exodus is talking about in its second half, starting in chapter 20. That's what Leviticus is dealing with as it deals with these laws, sacrifices, offerings. It's dealing with how can a sinful people live and dwell in the presence of a holy God. And so in Leviticus, we just kick off with this. And it starts immediately with these several offerings here in the first seven chapters, six chapters, six and a half chapters, really. You saw the burnt offerings in chapter one, the grain offerings in chapter two, the peace offering or fellowship offering in chapter three. These three offerings given first. Now, those three offerings were what we call voluntary offerings. In other words, that's what you would voluntarily do, meaning it's not done from compulsion. It's not done out of necessity. It's not done because you have to do it. It's an offering of worship unto the Lord out of thanksgiving, right? And so you're thankful for who God is and you bring offerings for these things unto the Lord. And so they're called voluntary. Some have used the language of free will offering. And, and simply what free will means is you do it because you want to. There's an attitude and a heart reflection that you offer these things out of gratitude, thanksgiving, because of what God has done for you. Those first three are voluntary in that sense. Now we get to the last two. And the last two being sin offerings in chapter 4 and then guilt offerings in chapter 5. These last two, sin and guilt offerings, these are not voluntary. These are obligatory. In other words, if you're going to dwell in the presence of God, your sins must be dealt with and your guilt must be, must be, must be taken away, right? And so this, the other three, you can survive by not doing. This one is not an option. If you're going to dwell in God's presence, your sin must be dealt with. And now we understand, think of it in the context of worship for us, because sometimes it's hard for us to put ourselves in this. It's in the same way. When we come to worship, there's things that we must do, right? There's things that are primary, but then there's also things that we do out of thanksgiving that are not extra or compulsory or forced upon you. They're just things we want to do. Many of you do those things out of service. 
We don't require, and God does not require anybody to serve in our church. But it's something you do because you're thankful for who God is. We talked about this with generosity, you know, how we give. We don't give out of any compulsion. There's nothing in our... Now, we can change the bylaws if you want to, forcing y'all to give. But, but, but I don't know how that vote would go, just, just to say it. But there's nothing in anything we do that forces anybody. In fact, there's no leadership in our church that even knows what anyone gives, right? Other than, other than the financial leaders, and our financial leader is not even a member of this church, which tells me I can fire him at any time. That's what I tell him all the time. But, but he's not even a member of the church, so the names he connects, he doesn't even know. It's a protection we have that I don't have any idea of. I don't want to pastor anybody different compared to what they give or don't give and what I know or don't know, right? And so ultimately, we have that. But your giving is a sign, as we talked about before, a response to the graciousness, goodness, and kindness of God in your life. Those first three offerings are like that. It's an act of worship that comes from thanksgiving within your very heart of what God has done. Therefore, that's what they're called as voluntary. But now you get to sin and guilt. And sin and guilt offerings are not an option. You cannot be a part of this church and not have your sins forgiven, right? The very first thing you must do to be a part and a, a part of this body of this church is confess your sins, repent of them, and ask Jesus to save you from your sins and make him Lord of your life. Is that, does everybody understand what I mean? So in order to be a part of the fellowship, having your sins forgiven is not an option. We don't just let you come and say, hey, I'm just going to join. I don't care anything about the Jesus thing. I'm not really worried about my sin. I just want to be a part of it because y'all are pretty cool. I can understand why somebody would want that. But that's not an option for us. Sin offering has to be dealt with. This, this is obligatory. This is compulsory. You cannot dwell in God's presence unless your sins have been dwelt with, dealt with. And that's what we find here in this one. And so you see it here in chapter 4. And what happens is with this fourth offering in chapter 4, this obligatory, this, this not voluntary offering, but one that must be done, we see the importance of it. And as chapter 4 lays out, what you see is a kind of a, a, a move forward. So you have kind of the importance from the weighty to the not as weighty. I don't want to say the important to the not as important because all of it's important. But you start in leadership. So you start with the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the people. If anyone sins unintentionally, if any of the Lord's commandments about things not be done, any one of them, if it is anointed priest. So he starts in verse 3 with the priest. If you see down in verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel sins, they go to the congregation. You see down in 22, when a leader sins, you go to the leaders. You go to... Excuse me, you go down to 27, when the common people sin. So you kind of see this move from the priest, what's expected, down to the whole congregation, down to the leaders, down to the common people. So you see chapter 4 is kind of set up on what to do in this weighty issue of the priest all the way down to what happens if someone in the common of the common people sin. What do you do there? By common people, it just simply means a member of the people of Israel, you know, with no office or position, what do they do? So it goes all the way down. Now, I want to point out a few things because it says, and the Lord spoke, this is a sin offering that is given. You see that in verse three. 
If it is anointed priest who sins, thus bring guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. And that's the language that we use. Now, we need to understand what sin is. Um, this is something you think, okay, I, and I do think most everybody in here understands and knows. But this is one of those words that every generation kind of deals with. Is it too harsh or is this too much? Or people don't like to be told they're sinners, right? So you have to kind of deal with this. But unless you understand sin and unless you understand that you are a sinner, then you have no part of God or in his presence, right? So that makes this vitally important. And it's, it's, it's something that you have to deal with. And that's what we see. What is sin? Well, clearly in this context, in this context, it's easy for us to understand the definition. Sin is breaking God's law. Anything you do that breaks God's law. Now, in light of this, you can understand that he's getting this information in Leviticus while he's at Mount Sinai. Y'all know what happened at Mount Sinai first? The Ten Commandments. God's law was given. And remember how the Ten Commandments went down. The Lord descends on Sinai, thunder, lightning, fire, everything's happening, and the Lord speaks. And all of the congregation hear the Lord saying the Ten Commandments, right? And when you get to the end of the Ten, remember what the congregation says, that's too much. We can't bear to hear this anymore in the sense of the, the ominous nature of the, of the God of the universe speaking to us. And so then Moses goes up into the cloud. He receives the rest of the law. My point is, the people here are not expected to know the law outside of what God has revealed to them. In other words, in the context, the Lord tells them exactly what's expected of them. This is good, right? I mean, we can say this about the word anytime. The Lord tells us exactly what he wants. He does not leave us guessing. He doesn't leave us wondering. He doesn't leave us going, I wonder if this is right or this is wrong. And no matter how many times we try to stretch the gray areas, usually those gray areas aren't as gray as we really think they are, are they? Usually they're not. Usually we can recognize it. No, that's against the commands of God. And so in this context at Sinai, the people understood what sin was in breaking God's law. There's other definitions in Scripture you can do it. It's the definition, for example, of, of missing the target. I'll show you all this. Turn with me to, to Judges. This is a good one if you're explaining it to, to children, for example. And some of us act like kids, and so it may be good for all of us. But in Judges chapter, chapter 20, Verse 16, uh, here the Lord is talking about who is qualified, who is not qualified. And so it says in chapter 20, verse 16, it says, Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair. Y'all get that? That's Jed Clampett. Good. <laughs> Does everybody know the reference to Jay Clampett who can shoot a fly off the wall at 100 paces? Does everybody know that? This guy, he's saying, here's the ones who's qualifying. Don't ask me right now. We will be in Judges in 2026 or 7. <laughs> so don't ask me what it means for left-handed right now or anything like that. We'll get there in a couple years. What I will tell you is, what it says is, who one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. 
That word, not miss, is the same word for sin. In other words, someone could sling at a stone at a hair and not sin, is what it literally says. But in the context, the word is understood as miss because you're shooting something at a target and you're missing the target. Again, a good definition of sin is missing the target. God has told us, here's how we are to live, and sin is missing that target of where we're to live. There's, there's other examples like that in throughout the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah 65, it tells us that sin is failure to reach a goal. A standard is put in front of you, and you do not get there. Or, or it tells us in Proverbs, sin is veering off of the path. You move away from what is laid out before you as the right way to live, so you veer away from it. So missing the target, failure to reach the goal or the standard that is placed in front of you, not, re not veering off the path, whatever the case may be, it is breaking God's law. God has said, here's how you must live, and when you don't live that way, you are sinning against God. But I will say even more. You can t turn with me to Romans 5, because this is a, a complex issue. But y'all recognize that sin didn't start in Exodus chapter 20, right? When God gave us the law, that's not the first time sin began. It became clarified in some way. But even before the law was there, sin was there because of Adam. Chapter 5 Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What was, was that like Adam was guessing? Do y'all remember what happened in the garden? God gave Adam what? A rule, a law. And what did Adam do? Broke it. He missed the mark. He didn't reach the goal. He didn't, he veered from the path that God had given him. And because of that, that's sin. And so he veered away. And so he's saying that sin came because God gave a law. Adam didn't keep it. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Paul, who makes complicated arguments a lot, and he does it here in Romans, but his point is that people would say that sin only started in Exodus 20 are not true. Adam sinned. He broke God's law. And because Adam sinned, death came in. And what happened? If you remember Genesis chapter 4. Do y'all remember when I taught Genesis chapter 4? I'm sure y'all got it right at the top of your head. But Genesis chapter 4 is Seth and Cain, right? I mean, excuse me, Cain and Abel and then Seth. So Cain and Abel. Sin is, Satan's crouching at the door, Cain. Sin definitely takes place there. Cain murders Abel. Did they know that was wrong? Obviously they did. Satan is after you. That was something. Was, was, had God given the commandment at Mount Sinai before, uh, before this when he said, you shall not murder? No. But did Cain know it was wrong? Yes. Was he punished for it? Yes. Then you get to chapter 5. In chapter 5, it lists out 10 generations. And do you remember what those 10 generations say at, at the end of every one of them? Such and such lived to be 900 and something years old. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he, over and over again, the phrase comes. And why does death enter in? Because of sin. Because of sin. The point being for Paul here is that the law clarified, yes, 
what it means to follow after the Lord. But from the beginning, from Adam's time, it's been clear to all of us what right and wrong was. Because within all of us, the image of God exists. And we know what right and wrong is. So when we sin against what we know is right and wrong within our hearts, if you go to different cultures and different places who's never had the Bible, never read it, never know, doesn't know anything about it, every single one of those cultures has a law, however it works, against murder and against even taking false oaths. It's interesting when you go to other countries, it's, it's, you can't lie in an oath. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because you can't build a society on this. This is, comes from within the image of God within all of us to know through that conscience that, that this is right and this is wrong. Paul's saying from the very beginning, we know what right and wrong is. Therefore, as Romans 1 says, we are all without excuse. God has put it in our hearts to know what is right and wrong, and all of us have sinned and fallen short of that glory. You can't say, well, I never read the Ten Commandments. You knew what was right and wrong, and you still did wrong. And all of us have fallen to that, just as Adam did. We're in that same vein. So ultimately, as God comes in here in chapter 4, he's saying because of your sin, your breaking of the law, He's not telling them, hey, he, he has, he has says, here's what you are to do. But he's also understanding, right, that everybody's going to break the law, that we're all sinners. And so because of that, he's making a way for them to find their sins to be forgiven. That's the graciousness of God, right? The graciousness of God is in the fact that he has been clear as to what his standards are, whether it's written on the tablets on Mount Sinai or it's written in the hearts of each and every one of us. We know what right and wrong is, and we've chosen to do what is wrong in our nature. We've chosen to miss the mark, to veer off the path that God who created us set up for us. We've chosen to break his law and his commandments, and because of that, the wages of that choice, sin, is death. So our sins are what separate us from God. And so he, as a holy God, cannot mesh with people who are unholy and not pursuing after forgiveness. Here comes the sin offering. And in this way, it's a gift of God's grace to us. It's a gift of God's grace. You see, all of us are sinners and all of us deserve death. The mere fact that we're still alive is God's grace and kindness to us. All of us are sinners and we deserve death. What we don't deserve, if we want to talk about fairness, y'all know how I hate when my children bring up the word that ain't fair. Y'all know what I mean? Don't tell me what fair is. I can tell you how I suffered in my childhood, which I didn't. <laughs> but when we talk about it, what would be fair for us is for the Lord to condemn us to death upon our first sin. Because that's what breaking God's commandment is worth. He is so holy, therefore one breaking of his commandment deserves an eternal punishment of death. And so ultimately that would be fair. What's gracious of, a, of him is to give us a way to have our sins forgiven, right? That's what's gracious. It goes back again to the 10th plague, you know? The death angel was coming and it's coming to every house, what was gracious of God is he gave a way out for that death angel not to come to your house by following after and being obedient to him. It's the same way here. 
Death is coming to all sinners. What's gracious is he's offering a way for your sins to be forgiven. And we see that in chapter 4. Notice else a couple things about this. If anyone sins, we, we talked about the, the weighty to the not as weighty, going from the priest all the way down to the common man and woman. But it says, if anyone sins, notice what they say here about this. If anyone sins, they have to offer a sin offering. The word for sin and the word for sin offering are the same word. They're the same exact word. So context helps us, right, is what you, what you have to go with. And that happens a lot of times in translations because languages like Hebrew and others quite often don't have the same vocabulary as we would have. And so what word for sin and sin offering is the exact same word. And so what that means is ultimately it denotes that both the offense and its remedy is found in this. So the offense of sin and the remedy for sin are found together at this moment. And so ultimately you see that together. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 21, for example. And y'all know 1 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. The, the language here could be read, 521 could be read. He made him who knew no sin to be a sin offering on our behalf. Does that make sense to everybody? And so you find in this the, the transgression and the remedy for it in the same thing. And so you see these meshing of these two things together. The purification and forgiveness is found in this sin offering. It denotes why we have to have an offering and how, what the remedy for it is at the same time. Notice what it says about those who bring the sin offering. What kind must be? Verse 2, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins, how? Unintentionally unintentionally. Notice that they that, that doesn't change. You go down to 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and notice it says it in verse 22. When a leader sins doing unintentionally any one of the things that by commandments of the Lord God ought not to be done. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally there is a sense here that it's speaking to the heart of those who sin. Right? In other words, what's the opposite of doing it unintentionally? Doing it intentionally. Perfect. Doing it on purpose. So it speaks to two different kinds of people. There are those, and I would like to say, hopefully I'm in that camp, that sin unintentionally. I don't want to break God's commandments, but I do. Does that make sense? There's those of us that do it. Y'all know the old saying that, that Martin Luther has, you know, a bird may fly over your head, but you don't have to let it make a nest in your hair. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So in other words, we as sinners by nature who are seeking after the Lord, quite oftentimes we sin. The bird flies over our head, but that's a whole different animal than letting that sin make a nest in our life and in our hair. And so he says here over and over again, it changes on who you are. If you're coming and you've sinned unintentionally, right, without the intent of being brazen against God, without the intent of saying you don't care about his law, without the intent of doing that, then you can come and bring an offering to the Lord. You can come and bring an offering to the Lord. In fact, not only does it say that, it says something else here. If you sin unintentionally, verse, for example, down in verse 13, and you realize your guilt, you sin unintentionally and you realize your guilt. It says it over again in verse 22. And they realize their guilt. It says it again in verse 27. And they realize his guilt. So not only what type is happening here, 
but it's unintentional breaking of God's law where it's not a rebel. You know, you got kids that are rebels and they're doing stuff just for the purpose of breaking it. And then you got some who every once in a while do something stupid. Y'all know what I'm talking about? This is what he's saying. You got these, you got two kinds of children here. And so you know what it means to try to please God, but you make mistakes and you miss the mark sometimes. You recognize you're guilty and you bring the offering before the Lord, you will be accepted. It speaks to the broken and contrite heart, right? Remember, worship is not a position of the body. Posture, as one has said, in worship is often imposture. We can fake the position of our body, right? So we can put our body in all kinds of positions for worship, and it can be genuine or it can be fake. None of us know. What we do know is that worship is a matter of the heart. And you can't fake that position before God. And so what does God count in worship more than anything else? A broken and contrite heart. So he says, when you bring this offering, if you're coming not as a rebel against my law, but as someone broken and contrite, who wasn't seeking to to dishonor me, but you sinned against me, you're coming as someone broken and contrite, and you recognize your guilt, then your offering will be accepted. Your offering will be accepted. Have y'all, y'all have heard of the ABCs, right? When you share, when you share the gospel, y'all have all heard this. You got to do number one, what? Admit you're a sinner. Y'all heard this before? Y'all, hopefully y'all have because this, you got to admit you're a sinner. You got to believe that the offering or the sacrifice or the gift of God is enough to cleanse your sins, right? So you got to believe that what you're doing is truly a remedy for your sins and you got to confess before the Lord. You see that laid out here even in the sin offering. You got to come. Nobody who is sinning intentionally is going to be seeking after forgiveness is what he's saying. You can't, you can't jump from intentional outright rebellion here just to, to seeking after forgiveness. You can't go. Y'all know how this works. Again, I got one of my kids in here. He's about there taking notes, or at least he's acting like it. You got, you got this, but y'all know how it works with children. And the reason why I like children is because God, as the Father, is watching over these children here of Israel in the Old Testament, right? And so sometimes we act in the same way. And y'all know what happens when children make mistakes and they just look at us and say what? Sorry, right? As if that covers everything. Oh, sorry, well, you know. No punishment necessary, nothing, you're okay, everything's great. That's not how it works. You can't just do, so it has to be the matter of the heart. Are you really sorry, really? So you can't jump from brazen, rebellious sin to offering a sacrifice and saying, thank you, I'm out. It's not a ritual. It's not some sort of act that, that carries with it some ritualistic response that God is obligated to see the action as forgiving of sins He's not saying that. You can't come to him and just simply say, hey, I did what you asked me to do. Now get off my back, right? That's not the position of those seeking forgiveness. You come to him with a broken heart, a a, a non-rebellious heart, a contrite heart, and you recognize the pain and difficulty of sin. You recognize you're guilty of it, and you ask his forgiveness. That's what the sin offering is. Now, if you read this, and I've talked about this before, 
In Leviticus, we don't want to get caught up for the trees and miss the forest, right? We like to see the forest. And you can get into trees in Leviticus with a lot of these details. And you have some of these details here. I mean, verse 8, all the fat of the bull and the sin offering, he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails, all the fats that's on the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the... Y'all get what I'm saying? There's a lot of detail here and you can dive into that detail and in some ways you will lose your mind trying to figure out what, what exactly is happening. You'll sit there. And that's why we make jokes like, man, this, this gets, I don't even know. So let me offer you three reasons why I think those details are in there, okay? And we'll come back to this, but three simple reasons why all those details are in there. One, Order to differentiate between the foreign deities. Every ancient Near Eastern god that was being worshipped was requiring some sort of sacrifice, right? Sacrifice language of animals is not just exclusive to Christianity or Judaism at this point. Other people, I've been in the world nowadays where sacrifice is offered, right? I'm walking in, 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 in South Asia, and I'm walking, and I tell them, I say, let's go to some place. Let's get on it to be tough to get there. I got some young people with me. Let's go to a village that's hard to get to. And they pointed at a mountain, and they said, see that mountain right there? I mean, this thing is significant. I was young and arrogant, and I said, let's go there, right? And so we went over this mountain on the other side, and when you go on the other side, there's a village, and we walk into this village, and I kid you not, the guy is raising the machete, whack, and he chops the chicken's heads off, and he says something, and he offers it up to the gods. They had just planted their crops, and they were offering a sacrifice to the gods to have, to have a good crop for this. And man, I'm telling you, it was a true God moment. I got in there. I got these young, young fellas with me that I'm trying to show something up. And it was like the Lord, you know how the Bible says, don't worry about what you say. Sometimes it'll come to you even if you're not smart. Spirit gives it to you, but that's what I'm taking at. And man, it was this. I said, can I share something with you guys? And all of these men are standing there that offered up a sacrifice. And let me tell you the one true sacrifice that was offered for you, right? We had a great time sharing and talking with those fellas. And it was it was, but this was four or five years ago. Sacrifices are offered in all kinds of cultures to all kinds of deities all the time. And let me tell you what was not happening with those fellows in that sacrifice. There was no order to it. Chicken's head flopping around, blood going everywhere. It was chaos, right? By the way, I told him I wanted to go to a hard place, so we climbed up that hill. We got finished there after about two hours in the village, just a great time. I said, all right, where do we need to go back? We got to climb back over here. I said, no, we go out this way. Went around a little bend in the road, about 500 feet, and there was the whole highway right there. <laughs> Van picked us up. I was like, all right, well, that's silly. We climbed that hill to get there. It was hard to reach from that direction. The other direction was right there. So anyway, my point is, all these other, there is a sense in which God is differentiating the worship of his people from the worship of other gods. That means order. Y'all know I had, a, I had an older gentleman in my last church 
Pastor, my favorite verse of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, do all things decent and in order. And I told him, man, you sound exciting. But that's 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Whenever Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, talking about worship, he says, we as believers do things decently and in order. And so as you see this, he's laying it out here. When you're going to worship me, even in the sacrifice, there's order to it. It's not chaos. It's not some nasty scene. You set one thing over against another. You separate this. You do that. There is order to this worship. It gives it that sense. There's order to this process. And number two, there's obedience here. Obedience is often found in the scriptures in the details. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? In the details. I'll just give you an example in Joshua chapter five and six. Y'all know what happens in Joshua six, right? Jericho. Well, in Joshua chapter five, the commander of the Lord's army shows up outside the walls of Jericho when Joshua doesn't know what to do to fight this battle. And the commander of the Lord's army shows up and he says, here's what you do, right? And then Joshua comes back and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into battle. And here's how we're going to go into battle. We're going to march around this place one time a day for six days, right? Don't say a word. We're just going to march around in silence. On that Seventh day, we march around seven times. And when you march around in silence after seven times, what do you do? You get to the end and you just scream real loud. Now, what kind of battle plan is that? The Lord wasn't so much concerned about winning the battle at Jericho. He was showing his people what it means to be obedient in the details, right? God says, here's how it's going to work. God sets the standard. Here's what it is. And those standards are given and those details are given quite often for us to show our obedience to the Lord. Think about again that, that uh, passage of the 10th plague. You know, he could have just said, hey man, slop some blood up on the post and the death angel will go by you. Everything's cool. But no, he told them how to cook it. He told them how to eat it. He told them what to do with the bones after they finished with it. He told them what to sing. He told them what to pray. He told them to pack their bag, keep their staff between their feet. He gave clear instructions on everything. Why? Because obedience matters to the Lord on the details. And if you can't be obedient in the small things, how can you be obedient in the big? And so the Lord gives details quite often for us to show obedience. And obedience is found here. When these sacrifices comes, it was a way for the people to say, God has spoken and I'm going to do it. And God has reasons quite often that we don't know, right? Why did he do it that way at Jericho? He did it that way at Jericho so that you know, so that you know it was only God who can accomplish this, not you. And in many ways he does it with this sin offering because you see this is God's work, right, of what he does. This is his work, what he gives us. But then there's the third way reason, and I think that's observation. And what I mean by that is this becomes a testimony. I used observation because I had order obedience and I need another O. But observation is a testimony as to what is necessary when seen in the work of Christ. In other words, Hebrews chapter 9. Y'all turn, turn, turn with me real quick to Hebrews 9. The detail in Hebrews 9 is mimicking the detail of what happens here. And what Hebrews 9 is talking about is the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf and how he entered into the 
holy of holies in heaven, not made with hands, right? So it says in verse 11, when the Christ appeared as high priest, the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and all these sprinkling of defiled persons, he's talking about Leviticus right here. If all of that truly could save, right? The foul person with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For well, a will, where a will is, he goes down, let's go to verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and the scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant God had commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with those rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters on the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would not have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." All of this language in Leviticus matters because it points to what Jesus had to do for us and his sacrifice. And he cleanses, he cleanses the temple in heaven, not the copy down here on earth, but what is there. And so it gives us that picture of what it takes. It's an observation for us to see what Jesus really accomplished for us in forgiving our sins. His blood was shed that altar in heaven was cleansed by him. If you go down, though, I want to, to speak to that. If you continue, if you got your finger there, I, I messed up and went back. But Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us what happens because of Jesus' sacrifice. Since the law has been a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It is Christ who makes us perfect. So you get into verse 19. We can enter in. We can draw near to God, dwell in his presence. We can enter in there. We can hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. We can stir one another up to love and good deeds. But look at an ominous verse here, verse 26. This is speaking directly, I think, with the intentionality of Leviticus. Because he says, this offering for our sins has been made in Christ. And so therefore, if we believe in Christ and his blood washes us, we have forgiveness of sins and we can dwell with God forever in his presence. For if, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, y'all see that? Isn't that the same language? He's speaking about those. Now, he's talking about those who admit they're a sinner, believe the sacrifice offered on G from Jesus is the true remedy for sin, confess our sins as guilty before God. 
if we see that, but then he deals with this issue. But if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins, but fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He's saying here that once you clearly see what Christ has done and you act in rebellious nature to that and keep on sinning and breaking the law deliberately, there's no hope of forgiveness for you in that. Your heart will have to break. Your heart will have to break. Now, I say that in the context of 21st century American culture. And I say that in the context of church life, right? And I've dealt with this verse with so many because this is powerful in some sense. Because how many of us know people and I hesitate to say this, but I love y'all. How many of us even know our own children that at one time professed faith, right? But now they live their lives in open, defiant sin against God. Open and defiant, intentional sin against God. And do y'all see what he's saying here? What he's saying is that that doesn't mesh. You have to go back and understand that that they don't understand what Christ did. They don't understand the nature of the law. They can't live in rebellion from who he is if they truly have understood the weight of their sin, the gravity of this moment, if they truly understood what that cost them. You can't live in intentional sin. It's impossible. If you are, my question to everybody is, I'm not going to doubt. I'm not going to have to say, well, you're not a sinner. I don't have to do that. I mean, you're not, a, you're not saved. I don't have to do that. What I'm going to say is, there is something dead wrong about what you believe about Christ and sin and what he's offered. So much so that you should not live in some sort of satisfaction and assurance that everything's going to be okay with you. You need to live in repentance and seek forgiveness from God. Because if you keep going on sinning deliberately, there's nothing there. Sacrifice is meaningless to you because you've shown that with your own life. And it's not as if God is saying, you know what? Uh, forget that guy. You're saying it by how you live, right? You're saying it by how you live. So when you get to the sin offering, you see that. You see that, man, the only ones that can come before God and this offering be accepted are those who recognize that they are guilty before him and that they have broken his law and they are contrite and humbled before him and they need his forgiveness. You can't just pop in and go, my bad, God. Here's a little thing I'm going to do. I'll see you later. Everything's okay now. It's not a ritual that he's saying you have to offer. It's a heart condition. And your worship is a reflection of your heart. And whether or not it's a good aroma unto the Lord only comes from the fact that it comes from a heart that is broken and contrite. That's Bible, right? And so here ultimately we see that this is how our sins can be dealt with from a heart that is broken and contrite. He goes on in chapter 5 and he says, he gives here these cases requiring sin offerings like so often. You know, he gets to it and says, here's some cases that work. So, so you give us what you're supposed to do and then kind of give examples or case law. He's done this before. And so you see... Uh, what cases require sin offering? So if somebody's going, I don't know what I did. Do I have to do this or do I not? He, he's trying to spell that out for you. That's the cases of omission. 
Y'all know the sins of commission and omission. Commission being something you do that's a sin against God. Omissions being something you don't do when you should have done something that's a sin against God, right? And so he's saying there are cases of omission where you do. There's cases of negligence. You can see this in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. There's cases of impulse where you do something like buy a silly magazine in the line as you're checking out from the grocery store. Y'all know what I'm talking about. When you do something out of impulse, you know, there's things that try to get that where, where you make some... The example he uses is whenever you make a promise out of impulse and you don't keep the promise, an oath out of impulse. He says, don't make the oath. He'll say this in, in to say this to him in numbers. Don't make the oath. But if you do make the oath, you got to keep the oath, right? So there are places that if you make a promise, I mean, it. children, again, are so good at this, right? They're trying to get you to say, I will do it for you. And so before the day starts, Patton is already wondering who's going to pick him up for school and will they take him to McDonald's? And his intention is to get you to say, I will do it. When I pick you up, yeah, we'll go. And I may just flippantly be like, yeah, whatever. I'm just trying to get through the moment, survive, and we'll be okay, right? Guess what happens when we get out of school? You said, Dad. Yes. I don't have to say it, but I did. And so now, fulfill the promise, right? So out of impulse or whatever the case may be, he's saying those are things that need sin offering. And so you see that there um, when he, you see, omission, negligence, and impulse. We may not realize this right away, but then he gives us that sense. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him also. Those sins of omission, negligence, and impulse are still sin, and they must be dealt with. They must be dealt with. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that every single sin committed has to be dealt with by God. And if he doesn't deal with it, then he's not God. The Lord God in his holiness cannot sweep sin under the rug, right? It's not something he can overlook. Because if he does, then he's compromised his own holiness, and once he compromises that, he ceases to be God in the scriptures. I mean, that's, this is a, uh, the holiness is the attribute that covers all other attributes. It's, it's who he is. And so once he compromises on this issue, then he is no longer the one who sets the standard and rule because his rule's been compromised. And so, so ultimately, that's what we see he's saying here. Yes, omission and negligence and impulse, you may not even realize you do it, but still those sins have to be paid for. Still, there's sin against God. An impulse, and you make a promise and you don't keep it, that's breaking a promise. That's lying, false witness. Still, it has to be dealt with. And when you realize your guilt, that's when you deal with it. You confess it and you bring sacrifice for it. He even shows his grace by allowing them down through there, if you cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, verse 11, he talks about what you can do to offer these Sacrifices. The Lord shows his grace. And if you can't afford a female, uh, a female goat or a female lamb, then you bring turtle doves. You can't afford that. He gives you options to show his grace on this. By the way, this presupposes that the Lord knows what you can afford. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And y'all remember Ananias and Sapphira? The Lord knows how much money they made. They tried it. And what happened to them? It ended. You see what I mean? 
The Lord knows what you can afford. So when you bring that offering, he knows whether or not it's legit from the heart, from the heart. But he gives it there in grace to say, if you can't afford it, here's this to offer and to bring. Now, I thought, see, that took longer than I wanted it to. We're going to talk with guilt offerings and move into the priest. We'll do that next week just to kind of put those two together. At the end of this, ultimately what we see is that Hebrews passage. That great gift that God has given us in his son, again, we could end every week in Leviticus right here. What all of these sacrifices show us is just what it took for us to dwell and to live in God's presence, to be welcomed into his family, to be welcomed into eternity with him. It took sacrifice, the shedding of blood. It took something to die in your place. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And therefore, we can often say, well, you know, we Adam sinned and he didn't die. But do you remember who did die or what did die? Animals that were sacrificed and the skins were used to cover them and their nakedness. Y'all remember that? And so ultimately what a sacrifice is, is a substitution that takes the place, takes the punishment that you deserve on your behalf. So the wages of sin is death. And you say, well, God doesn't, but, but something has to die in order for my sins to be forgiven. For this period, Leviticus in the Old Testament, God made provisions that what could die in your place was a sacrifice, a bull or a goat or a turtle dove or whatever it may be. What could die in your place is a sacrifice. But then Hebrews says, we know the blood of bulls and goats doesn't save anybody. They were just a placeholder. They were just something that pointed us to what would finally redeem us and save us, right? And so here comes the perfect spotless lamb of God, qualified and fit in every way to be the sacrifice that dies in our place, taking our sin, our guilt, our shame, our punishment, dying in our place for us. That sacrifice was made. The wages of sin is death. What it should remind these people in Israel, in Leviticus, every time they went to the temple or the tabernacle at this time, every time they went and made a sacrifice, it was bloody, and it was real. And every time it cost them something, they had to take the best to take it up here and offer it to God. The best of whatever category it was. So every time they sinned, it was a clear reminder as they were sorry for their sin, they saw their guilt, they admitted it, they believed the sacrifice was sufficient, they confessed it and they brought it to the Lord. Every time they sinned, they had to kill an animal. They had to kill a goat or a sheep or a cow because of their sin, right? It should be a reminder to them that, my goodness, this is, this is bad. Like, we don't like to see animals die. You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, some of them. Patton got her hamster. 
And we were, we, Allison and the kids were coming back, but we had to go, they drove back in the car and they had to, they had to coming back from somewhere, but we had to go straight to something. So the hamster went with us. I wasn't in the car, but the hamster went down where we were and then came back with us. But we went straight somewhere. So summertime, Went straight there. I'm like, Al, uh, where's, where's the hamster? Oh, he's in the car. Four hours. In the pit of my heart stomach, I was like, oh, God. I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to have to drive him home. And you got to tell him. Because in my heart, I knew that animal was dead. And I felt bad about it, right? Suffered. This is a rat. <laughs> Suffered in that car and just died of heat. So I wasn't going to touch it. You got to deal with this. Wasn't me. Feeling that pain. Allison went and got in the car. I met her at the house and I just stuck my head out the door and I went like this. The joy in my heart when she said. <laughs> now, how this hamster survived, I got no idea. It was 90 degrees outside, had to be roughly 100 in here. This thing is inhuman. <laughs> Obviously. But it survived. And I felt good about it. You don't want to gratuitously just kill something, right? I mean, even I mean, some of you might, but that's still weird. We see life and we want it. Could you imagine every single time you sinned, you had to bring an offering of an animal, have its throat slit, its blood shed out, deal with the whole process of setting apart the lobe of the liver and the kidneys and separating the fat from the entrails. Every time you sinned, it was a process that you had to go through to get your sins forgiven. And at the end of the day, it teaches us that your sin is serious before God. And it's messy and it's awful and something's got to die, even you, if you don't do something about it. If you don't do something about it. And what happens for us is we take the sacrifice of God and his son, Jesus Christ, for granted. Because we don't have to walk to the temple every day to slit the throat. He died for us. But what the scriptures expect is for us to see that sacrifice as just as precious and as glorious and as serious and as awful at the same time. So that when we see him, the last thing we want to do is sin. We want to honor him and be holy as he is holy, right? That's why Hebrews says, if you keep on sinning intentionally, I don't know what to tell you. There's nothing left. Because no one can consider what Jesus did for us. Understand it and know it through the sacrifice on the cross. No one can consider that and say, ah, no big deal. No, it's everything to us. It's everything to us. That's what's expected when we get to the other side of Leviticus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ Jesus who is everything 
to us. And may we all consider his, his sacrifice on our behalf to be the most precious gift in our life so that as we live, we live to please him. And Father, when we do sin and mess up, may we praise God just as John tells us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So God, may we love Christ Jesus and be thankful for his sacrifice all the more every day for your glory and for your name we pray. Amen. Amen.